Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, Judges 13, again, again, the children of Israel. That's not a good start. Did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines, uh, which means immigrants, by the way, in the Hebrew. So for 40 years, and now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and do not eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So we'll start to break this down. Um, Warren Wearsby calls the story of Samson uh, or he quotes Churchill on this, where he says, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Have you heard that quote? Samson's, but you know what? It's not that twisted, I think, when you look at this in context. Every single judge we've had has gone from, really, Joshua, which is the Jesus-like model of how leadership should look, and it's devolved at every step. So by the time you get to Samson, where he's a guy who barely even believes in God, getting used by God. He's getting used by God despite the fact that he's defying and disobeying God. That's not such an enigma because it's the worst possible situation that God has no one in all of Israel that he can use. All that's left is this guy. And if that's the case, Israel has, through 350 years, come full circle from vowing to serve the Lord with all their heart, mind, and soul to being a bunch of people that are just doing whatever they want. And we're doing living life in their own eyes. And not one person in the nation can God look around and find to serve him. But God, luckily, God's faithful. So if you look at it in that sense, you got the, the culmination of all the judges, and God's then going to move and start to do something. It's kind of like back when Abraham was trying to make the original vow with God. Remember that back in Genesis 15? And then God waits for Abraham to fall asleep. Because on this covenant... It, God's going to do his end despite what humans are going to do. So God lays that covenant, and it's not a covenant of equals. And God's like that with Israel. It doesn't really matter what Israel's going to do. They're either going to glorify God by being an example <laughs> to the world, not the way you should go, or they're going to be a blessing to the world. Either way, they're going to glorify God, and God's going to be faithful in his covenant. So we get into these passages. It's the end of that 350-year period. Um, uh, at the end of chapter 10, it said that it was so bad God sold them into the Ammonites and Philistines. And then chapter 10 through 12, we dealt with the Ammonites. So now we're coming back to that point at the beginning of chapter 10 and moving forward down that other branch of the tree, the Philistines. So Samson is likely a contemporary with Jephthah. Like that's happening over here with the Ammonites while this is happening over here with the Philistines, if that makes sense. 
but the writer put it in the order that it did because there's this nice cascading effect with each of the judges. Each one of the judges becomes a worse and worse example. So it overlaps um, and we get these disputed territories. What's left at the end of Judges, this is if you have a good contemporary map of Israel in your head, the three regions in Judges that are left contested or not taken over by Israel all the way are the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and now we're dealing with the Gaza Strip where the Philistines are. Same three territories that they're struggling with today. It hasn't changed a bit in 5,000 years. So that's just an interesting thing that when you get to Judges, it starts to paint that geopolitical map that really is still in place even today. It says, again, the children of Israel, this is a cycle. We've seen that a few times. It says the Lord delivered again. We've seen that before. Um, it says that there's a 40-year period of time. Uh, this is a repeated pattern of being under some sort of oppression from other people. This time, though, with 40 years, that's a kind of a significant Jewish number. 40 years is like a full generation. It's a full cycle. In other words, it's been a whole generation of kids have grown up and not known a land that serves the Lord. So they're living in a completely secularized country or paganized country, depending on how you look at it. It says here, a certain man and his barren wife go through all of Israel and we don't see a lot of introductions so far in the Bible where it just says a certain man and a wife. And we get the name of Manoah. We don't get the name of his wife. They're two completely unremarkable people. There's nothing about them that stands out. It doesn't say that they're people of valor. It doesn't say that they're serving the Lord. It doesn't say that they're a remnant. Um, but an angel of the Lord comes to them. The word there for angel is malach. We've seen that in the Hebrew. Um, there's no, in this chapter, uh, all the uses of the phrase angel of the Lord, in the Hebrew, the of, the, isn't there. It's messenger Jehovah. So when you see angel of the Lord there, it's actually messenger Jehovah. Um, and that's consistent through the whole chapter. I didn't go backwards to check that in other chapters, but I thought it was interesting how many times it gets used in this chapter. But messenger Jehovah, in that sense, the word messenger or angel is there like an adjective, not a noun. So it's describing Jehovah as messenger coming here. So again, we have this Christophany situation. We've seen a few of these in Judges because God intervenes, and instead of showing himself in all his glory, which would kill a human, uh, he shows himself in the form of a man That's as something that doesn't kill us when we see God. God reveals himself in that kind of way. So God's manifest and he's seen uh, from Zorah, it says there, and the name was Manoah. It, it, this guy from Manoah, the word means rest, um, is coming from a place called Zorah, which is hornets. Uh, it's about 14 miles west of Jerusalem. So we're right in the middle of the country. The woman there is the second unnamed woman. The other unnamed woman we had was last chapter, Jephthah's daughter, never gets named. So in the same way this woman is here, she's significant, but she doesn't get to be named in part because there's nothing there that God wants us to see about these people. I think they're supposed to be kind of not there. But then you get this image of a woman who hasn't bore any children being told you're going to bear children. We've seen that before in the Bible. That's what God did with Abraham. It's what God's going to do again with Mary, a woman who hasn't had children that's going to have children. She's going to conceive. Um, so this idea that when God doesn't have anybody else to use that has lived a life that God wants to take advantage of, he raises up his own people from the womb 
And I think that's kind of interesting because that's exactly what he does with Jesus. He doesn't trust the parents to do it or somebody to make a decision along the way. When the country is truly gone to the weeds, he's going to raise somebody up from the bottom up. So he sends this baby uh, and as, as he has promised that he would. In part, I think one way to look at the judges is God always picks a faithful person or develops them in the case of Gideon. But in this case, this is exclusively God's work at the end of Judges. The more humanity fails, the more God's grace starts to get more and more impressive. And what he's doing here is he's interceding before the child's even born to do something that's more significantly God intervention than he's ever done with any of the other judges. So really, Samson isn't there. He's not helping much. And you can be confident in this thing that if God's begun a good work in you, he's going to complete it even up to the day of Jesus Christ. And that idea of um, Philippians 1.6, if God's come into your life in any way, shape, or form, he's got a plan for your life. There's somebody you're supposed to run into, somebody that thinks you glow or something that you're <laughs> supposed to talk to, somebody that you are supposed to be connecting with. If you're breathing, God has a purpose for your life. And he's got a purpose for Samson's life and he hasn't even breathed yet. And I just thought that was a really assuring thought. Like, okay, if I'm still here, there must be something I can do. What is that thing and what can I do? The idea of a Nazarite, I'm going to do a quick refresher course on Nazarite vows, unless somebody thinks they can remember the Nazarite vow. Back in the law, there's this weird little clause saying, if somebody wants to do more than the basic sacrifices, they can just give me a season of their life. They can say, I'm going to serve you, Lord, 100% for the next month. And it's a Nazarite vow. But if you're going to serve the Lord for that month, there's three rules that are the way that you signify that you're going to sanctify yourself for the service to the Lord. And this is even for non-Levites. Anybody can do a Nazarite vow. You don't have to be a priest. And that is, you can't eat any, any wine, grapes, or even raisins. Nothing from the vine can be consumed. Is that because raisins are evil? No. It's just a way to say, I'm fasting from that because I want to set myself aside for the Lord. Second thing is, you can't use a razor on your head or face in any way, shape, or form. You grow fluffy, right? Is that because having long hair is somehow more godly? No, it's not. It's just a way to set yourself apart in a way people can see. You're not going to drink with them. You're going to let your hair grow out. Uh, and then third, you're not going to touch dead bodies, which probably is, has to do with holiness and being clean. Right? So you can't touch dead bodies. You can't, even if your own mom dies, you can't go to your, the funeral. Can't be anywhere near a dead body. So those are the three rules. And in any good narrative, if you've got rules, they're going to get broken. Um, so we're going to get into that. The idea was that they were set apart or they were made sacred, that they were going to be made holy. From, in Samson's case, he's asking Samson to do this and working with his parents so that even when he's in the womb, he's not consuming grapes, right? So even the mom has to follow the vows. So it's unique in that this is a lifetime Nazarite vow for Samson. That's the only thing that's unique about this. So there is, the mom's supposed to be careful. In other words, she's supposed to kind of take this on too. And um, then the last part of that passage, it says Samson's going to begin to deliver. If we're looking at each and every word, that's an interesting thing because every other judge has done something has successfully conquered. You will conquer the Midianites as one person, right? This is going to be the first judge that only starts the fight against the Philistines. He's not going to finish anything. 
He's just going to pick a fight. Like in the movie Braveheart, when they all get out and they, the, the, the thing where they're supposed to meet and talk fails, and then the guy says, well, we didn't get all dressed up for nothing. And it's kind of like that. Samson's job is just to pick a fight. And that's what he's supposed to do. Whether or not he's on board with that plan, that's what he's going to do. The only other kind of Nazarite vow that really stands out, if you want to take New Testament comparisons, is John the Baptist took a Nazarite vow. And this is one of the things that John the Baptist began a work that he wasn't going to finish. And Samson's kind of a reflection of John the Baptist in that light because they both start something that somebody else is going to take over and finish. And they, they, they do that. And John the Baptist likewise picks a fight. He likewise gets killed by the ruling authorities. Right? So there's a lot of like parallels between Samson and, and what's going on there. The only difference is John the Baptist actually wanted to serve the Lord, and we're going to see Samson's just a putz. Like he doesn't do any of that sort of thing. So verse 6, So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God, like messenger Jehovah. Very awesome. But I didn't ask him where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name like she's trying to be polite. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor anything unclean. Uh, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb until the day of his death. So interesting that God goes to the wife first and doesn't go to the husband at all. Same thing he does with Mary and Joseph, right? Goes to the wife first, doesn't go to the, the husband. Um, part of that is because in the ancient world, the raising of the kid was primarily done by the mom. The dad was off working all day and the moms were, or the females were taking care of the kids. So if you want a kid raised correctly, you go to the person who does that work. And that would have been Mary and that would have been this nameless woman, the wife of Manoah. The countenance here, Mara, in the passage where it says his, the countenance was like the countenance of uh, an angel of God. Again, take out a lot of the extra words. It just says countenance, countenance. It's, an, it's a Hebrew emphatic right? He was amazing. He was worthy of your awe. You should meet this guy. He's a pretty neat guy. And when we do that, we do that when we, when we feel like God's talking to us through somebody. And messenger God does that, right? So when this man's talking, this woman has a clear and an accurate understanding that he's speaking words of God into my life. And that's pretty awesome. I want you to come meet this person. So again, very similar to what happens um, with the disciples inviting people to come out and see people, to meet Jesus, come and see him. Genesis 12, 11, Sarah um, was a sight to see. It's the same word, Marah. She was something to look at. So part of this is that visually this guy was something to look at, which is the opposite of Jesus. He was nothing particular to look at. But in this particular manifestation, he was there. Rachel in Genesis 29, 17, same word. She was Marah. She was something to look at, right? So we have, when we've seen this word before, it's had to do with physical appearance, that there's something that, about this person that's neat. Uh, in Genesis 3, 9, so we're not just picking females out here, at, or Genesis 39, verse 6, Joseph was called Marah. He was a handsome man. He was a good, good to look at kind of guy. At least Potiphar's wife thought so. Um, and then it was used again with the burning bush with Moses, that when he saw the burning bush, it was marah. It was something to look at. This is something you should see, a bush that burns and doesn't burn, Exodus 3.3. So basically, you need to see this guy, is what she comes back to her husband and tells him. I like the fact that you have a husband and wife that just talk to each other. Something happens to the wife, she just tells the husband. 
Because why would you want to experience life apart from one another? Let's do this together. So she immediately goes back to her husband, says, very awesome to look at, Yare, terribly powerful. And she's promised a son, even though she's been barren and hasn't been able to have a son. So she's expected to eat like a Nazarene and set it up. Verse 8, then Manoah prayed to the Lord, and that Lord there is Jehovah. He prayed to the proper God, not just a God, right? So he prayed to Jehovah, and he said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. All right, don't miss the fact that on the good side, Manoah trusts the Lord and asks the Lord for things, and he prays. Might be one of the only guys left in Israel that still prays to Jehovah, right? So that's on the good side. On the bad side, this also shows us Manoah doesn't even know how to teach his own kid what a Nazarite vow is. He doesn't know the law at all. So to have to be told that means he's not reading that because he should know a Nazarite vow is pretty simple. No, no wine, no dead people, no razors, right? And that it should be pretty simple, but he hasn't learned it, says the Jewish traditions are fading out of the culture. And then in verse 9, it says, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. Comes to the woman again, not the, not the husband. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So it's almost like God's saying, Buddy, you have nothing to do with this. This is between me and your wife, and I'm going to honor your prayer because you two are one. But really, this is me and the mom doing this business. So instead of coming back to both of them, he comes back just to the wife, like God's making a point of it right? Um, then it firmly establishes, by the way, that God talks to women. Firmly establishes that. The accusations against believers that it's somehow a patriarchal faith comes out of the Middle Ages, comes out of twisted belief in theology. It's just not the case in the Word of God. There are differences between men and women, but God clearly talks to women, and he does twice in a row, right? So they listen to the voice, and he listens to the voice. He's not listening to the prayer. He's listening to the voice. That's interesting because so far it always says he listened to so-and-so's prayer. And here it's, it's almost like God can't hear the prayer because there's something broken with Manoah, right? Something unclean or sacrifices haven't been done or something. So it disallows Manoah from taking any credit from this intervention at all. He's not relevant. Also, his genealogy is not given. And when you see in the Bible, we often see their parent, their grandparent, everything. None of that's here for Manoah. He's just some guy, right? But God's going to use him. And he's going to just use some guy because God doesn't need the genealogy to do his work. Verse 10, then the woman ran in haste and told her husband, don't miss him this time. And she said, look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah rose, followed his wife. And I kind of like that. There's this image that these two are kind of working together. Uh, and when he came to the man, he said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. <laughs> um, I like the idea that when he just responds with I am, that's consistent of God. And it is something that God does. And we see that all over the place. So the excitement kind of elevates and you can feel the tone of this couple going, oh, you got to come and see him. Now he comes in. Manoah finally gets to meet him. Are you the guy? And he's like, I am. And there's just this moment, this confidence. Um, he's called himself I am back in Exodus 3.14. Moses says, he says, who should I tell him sent me? And he says, tell him I am sent you, right? Interesting phrase. It gets used again here. Um, and then listen to this, John 18.5, going to the New Testament. They answered him, 
Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he, right? And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. So you see this idea that that idea of just saying I am is something God does because God doesn't need to do anything else. It is just that God is that motivates most people to action, right? I am. Manoah said, now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? He should know that. He should know what he's supposed to do. Clearly, he's not supposed to be a mortician. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the women, let her be careful. In other words, I already told your wife. Listen to what your wife says. I've told her and you need to help her to be careful and to work with her on this. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine. He explains it. Nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I've commanded, let her observe. The fact that he adds the don't eat anything unclean there, if they're good Jewish people, they should already be eating that way. That's not Nazarite vow. That's basic eating habits, which means those have gone out the window. They're eating pork. They're having bacon for breakfast, all that stuff, right? So none of those habits are there because he's saying, you got to change your diet for me. So he adds the diet piece there. That does not paint Manoah in a very flattering light, right? His house is eaten however he wants, and God's going to keep moving. But again, this is God's grace. He's, he's making this work. Um, then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you, and we'll prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. Oh, but if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. He was messenger Jehovah. The messenger of God is now willing to accept an offering, but he won't eat a meal with them. That goes back to Leviticus. God doesn't have fellowship with people that are in sin. So the first offering before there's any a, a fellowship with God is there has to be a repentance prior to having that relationship because God doesn't intermix with, with uncleanness. He just doesn't. That's a tough concept. The works-based theologian people go crazy about that. Well, that means you got to do all this good stuff before God loves you. No, sacrifice has already been given for us. But in this case, for Manoah, the sacrifice has not already been given. So he says, I'm not going to eat with you but you can do a burnt sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of atonement, of redemption, right? That's the one that takes care of sin. So you can do that with that goat. That would be a good start for you, Manoah. Let's get your household cleaned up and let's do that offering. So he does it. Um, it sanctifies him in that sense. Um, Oh, and then one question. Has God eaten with people before? And yeah, Genesis 18, God ate a meal with Abraham. So eating a meal with somebody is not a problem for God. There is, God does fellowship with us imperfect humans. But there has to be repentance for God to wipe away sin. If we don't ask for forgiveness, there's no forgiveness because we haven't asked for it. You know, he can have mercy, but he can't forgive unless repentance is offered right? It's a two-way street in that thing. So we have that situation here. So Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, what's your name that when the words come to pass, we can honor you? In other words, who am I speaking to, right? He's still trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, and this idea that he wants to honor with gifts is when the baby's actually born, they want to honor this person, right? So it's not clear that he understands who he's dealing with. And when he says, um, we want to honor you. He's talking for his wife too. And I just, again, there's things where, like the redeeming thing is these two are, are close. 
this husband and wife team are working together, living together, and this husband's confident enough to say, we want to honor you. And I just like that. I like that idea that they're a team. And the angel of the Lord says to him, why do you ask my name, seeing that it's wonderful? That's an odd sentence, don't you think? Where do you put the accent in that sentence? Right? That could mean a lot of different things. Wonderful, the word wonderful is pali, pali. It's there twice. So when it says seeing it, seeing it is wonderful, it is pili, pili. And the word pili in the Hebrew means incomprehensible or extraordinary. Same word. Uh, it could mean something that's a great mystery or a secret. Something that's simply not revealed or not known. So why do you ask my name? It's not revealed. Could be one way to interpret that sentence. Why do you ask my name? It's incomprehensible. Could be another way to enter. It's the same word. And so when we see God preparing this pre-Jesus revelation, he's not ready to give the name Jesus to this person yet, right? It's, there is a name, but it's not one that's going to be a mystery that you unravel in your lifetime. So it's still going to remain secret until much later. This is why the disciples got really excited. If you're a little Jewish kid growing up reading through the same books we've been reading through, the name of God becomes something that's really interesting. So when Jesus reveals himself to be resurrected, then we know that the name of this in-person version of God is Jesus or Jehovah. That's a pretty big moment in the Bible, but it's not yet, so we won't go there. Um, but this idea of wonderful being one of the names of God, we get a lot of names of God in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know this one, right? The government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful, wonderful in the Greek. Right? The same idea. His name shall be wonderful. Where did Isaiah get that from? He got it from this passage right here. That there's, and he lists names that we're going to hit throughout the Old Testament, and he puts them together. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's gathering names from the Old Testament and putting them forward. So God tells them to do the sacrifice, get your house cleaned up, because I'm going to do a work in your house. So the burnt offering is a good thing. 19. So Noah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing, same word, while Manoah and his wife looked on. The one who is wonderful just did something wonderful. Same word being used. As it happened that it went up and it happened as the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, that rock, altars aren't big fancy things, they're not pyramids, it's a rock. But because God made it sacred, it, its name changed. It became an altar. He was Saul, now he's Paul. He was uh, Simon Peter, now he's Peter, right? God changes names when he makes things sacred, and it's beautiful. So the rock becomes an altar in verse 20. The messenger Jehovah, the angel of the Lord, ascends in the flame of the altar, and when Manoah and his wife saw this, what do you do when you see God do a thing? You fall on your face to the ground. I like that. It's, again... I love the writing in the Bible, right? It's like, I'm going to burn your house down with fire, right? That double thing. He's going to fall, to the, he's going to fall on his face to the ground. Where else do you fall to, right? Verse 21, when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that it was the angel of the Lord. This is why he was asking the name before. He wasn't quite sure. Now he's sure. This is the messenger Jehovah. This is the God that talks to people. Um, 
Chapter 6, verses 17 to 23, if you want to do a nice cross-reference, God has a very similar conversation with Gideon. Remember that from a few weeks ago? Very similar conversation with Gideon. And it was the same outcome. Clean up your house. But here, it, the, there's a little bit of a difference. That conversation with Gideon was about 100 years ago. So time has passed. And in this case, the presence of God goes up with the flame. So in the first interaction with the angel of the Lord, the person of God is just not seen for a while. Remember, Gideon couldn't see him anymore. In this particular iteration of the messenger Jehovah showing up, he ascends to heaven visibly to his follower. Sound like anybody else we know. Where the first coming, he goes away and he's not going to be seen to prepare a place for you. And on the second coming, his disciples see him ascend into heaven. So the messenger of the Lord is in the process of Israel being all off, off the rails, God is creating these images, these idioms. Is that the right word? These metaphors throughout the Old Testament so that when Jesus comes, it's perfect in every way. So the angel of the Lord, the messenger Lord, is doing more than just talking to Manoah here and his wife. He's doing something where he's giving us a record that we can look at and show that as verification from a thousand years before when Jesus shows up. I love that stuff. Is there anything to palel for the Lord? This is what Sarah said when she was told she's going to have a baby. She says, is there anything too marvelous for God, too wonderful, too mysterious that he can't reveal? So there is a rock to the Lord, and on that rock he does a wondrous thing. <laughs> Number six separates um, the same word, wonderful, as someone who takes a vow to be separate for God. So in the sense that in the New Testament, one of the things that they, the disciples and Paul will talk about a lot is that when we consecrate ourselves to the Lord, he does something wonderful in us. We become different because of what he's doing in his heart. Not because we did like a self-help program or we went on a diet or we did something special. God just generates something new in us that we have really no power over, but we're in complete concert with. Isn't that beautiful? So there's this idea that we are consecrated. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Did you see the word behold in this passage? Look at this. Look at what's happening. Consider what God's doing. Verse 22, and Manoah says to his wife, we're going to die. <laughs> We've seen God. Again, this shows that his theology's messed up. He's not a good example in that sense, but he says, we shall surely die because we've seen God. Um, and that's because in Exodus 33, it says, you cannot, see the, you cannot see my face, God referring to himself, for there, no, there shall no man see me and live. Right? So that's a rule. You can't see God eternal, but you can see God when he comes in the form of a man. This is part of a triune God that can relate to humans. So here, messenger God actually goes up with the offering. He's interceding for Manoah and his wife, and he's taking that up. The angel of the Lord then here is making the rock sacred. He is the sacrifice, and he's the ascending high priest that's going to serve for Manoah and his wife, even though they are sinners and living in sin. But, his wife said to him, she's going to fix his theology. Clearly, I think God saw something in this woman that he didn't see in Manoah, because she corrects him, and the Bible records that. If the Lord desired to kill us, 
He would, have, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. God's not going to hurt you. If he's picked you, he's got a reason for picking you, and he's going to use you. That's the plan. There might be trials on that path, but there will likely be blessings on that path too. In fact, you're guaranteed there'll be blessings on that path. So God isn't going, <laughs> just that idea of we're going to die. And he's like, well, if the Lord wanted to kill us, we'd already be dead. Like if you can take a deep breath, you're not dead. So it must be God has something for you. I just love that idea. So she corrects him. She is using reason, not the scriptures. So she's just using her head and she assures her husband and tells him to take heart. So at this time, the time that we're talking about is facing the evil of the Philistines. Why would the Spirit of God convict you of your sin in the middle of a sinful culture? Why would God ask people to stand out and be set apart when the culture is going to, to, the, to the nasty places? Right? Why would he do that? It's because God wants to work, and he wants to work with people. God could just zap the Philistines with a giant lightning bolt, but there wouldn't be any Philistines left to tell the story, right? So part of this is like God could have dealt with the Philistines all by himself, but he'd rather do it in such a way that we're getting this to read in 2021 because he wants us to hear it so we can live it. For I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. When it gets dark, God has a plan. And he's on his throne and we can trust in that. So ultimately, that's what's going to happen. So next we get the introduction of the next narrative. The context here with Manoah and his wife is God's doing everything. God's interceding. God's not finding somebody that's already trying to serve him. He's going to do this from the ground up. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, which means sunny. I thought that was kind of funny because we actually name people that today. Sonny. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. So when it says the child grew, years pass. Uh, child growing in, in Jewish culture, uh, a young boy becomes a man at around age 14 or 15 years old. So he's a 15-year-old scrapper or maybe he grew and he's a little older than that. Um, this guy is given uh, what he needs from the Lord, and he's got a lot of promise. That's why we're going to call him Sonny. Thought I'd call him Sonny. Isn't that a Paul Simon song? Am I dating myself? Okay. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Uh, Mahana is a camp. Uh, Dan, therefore, is probably nomadic at this time. Remember, they didn't conquer their territory. So Samson's part of that group of people that never did settle down and take a territory, the tribe of Dan. Um, so they're still moving around. They didn't settle with the Philistines. They've kind of moved outside there. And then we get the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord is Ruah, Jehovah. Same thing. There's no of, the in there. It's just an adjective. Spirit, Jehovah. Breath, Jehovah. So we had messenger, Jehovah, in this story, and we have breath, Jehovah, in the story. One Jehovah different manifestations of that God. God the Spirit then is at work even when the messenger can't be seen. And that's a truth that we see in, in, that's established well in the Old Testament. Samson may not look like he's strong. Most of the cartoons have Samson as this ripped out WrestleMania guy. Nothing in this passage implies that he's something to look at 
that's physically strong. In all likelihood, he's a 15-year-old that hasn't fully gotten muscles yet. Nothing about him is amazing. That's what makes him so amazing, is that he can do these acts of strength, but he looks like just a normal guy, is what we get from these passages. So uh, um, no indication here anywhere so far as we start the story. There's been nothing where the people have cried out to the Lord. In every other passage where there's been oppression, the people of God cry out to the Lord. And in this passage, none of that. No crying out has happened whatsoever. So this is going to be the same time as the, um, the battle of Aphek we're going to see in 1 Samuel 4, which we know all the Israelites were disarmed after that battle. So there's no weapons, and it's illegal for them to have weapons. So they do not have a constitutional amendment. Uh, the Philistines took away their weapons and kept them. So they, they're not allowed to have them. So God uh, hasn't relieved them from that thing. All we have is this guy named Sonny who's supposed to do things. Sonny's not even a big guy's name, right? So it's, I get this image of Sonny being not kind of a scraggly-looking guy. And he doesn't really get strong until he eats his like, spiritual spinach or something like that. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he just comes out. So verse 1 of Judges 14 now Samson went down to Timnah, now being right when he came of age, right? So he's, he's old enough, he's considered a man. What's the first thing a young Jewish guy does when he gets the title of man? He goes out looking for a wife, and that's what Samson's going to do. So he went down to Timnah. Uh, when it says went down, I love this stuff because I'm a geography geek. That's actually geographically accurate. They're up in the hill country, and the Philistines are Gaza. Gaza is... Gaga hasn't been born yet. She's God hasn't prepared her parents. Um, so they're going to come down out of the hills onto the Gaza plain, which would be going down. So those little details to me, I just love those when I see them in the Word because you can check them, and it's almost like God's inviting you, like prove one word of this book wrong. And that going down thing, you're quickly looking at the map and going, ah, yeah, it's right on target again. And it keeps going that way. He saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Are Jewish people supposed to be marrying, intermarrying with the Philistines? The answer to that is no, because we've read through the law. They're not supposed to do that. So God's planning to help with this Samson before the help's even needed in this situation. Clearly the Philistines and the Jewish people, he can move down and go through the city. So there, it isn't, there's some freedom of travel left. So the big problems haven't hit yet. Um, so the camp of Dan and this town would be about seven miles apart based on what uh, scholars say about these locations. So he saw a woman. <laughs> um, the problems with Samuel starts when he sees a woman. So time passes before he sees a woman. But when he sees a woman, things start to go bad for him. And I'd suggest that that's not because seeing a woman is bad. It's that he hasn't sought the Lord first. And if he doesn't have the Lord first in his life, he has no business trying to take somebody else into his life, right? He has to commit himself to the word. So his desire isn't to serve God or seek the Lord or to compare him to, to, to um, any of the other judges, right? And he's just not seeking the Lord. That's not part of the story. What he wants is a young lady. Um, so he's not serving the Lord. He's serving himself. Um, anyways, verse two. So he went up. And told his father, goes back up into the hills, tells his father and mother saying, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, 
get her for me as a wife. He just sounds like a brute, right? <laughs> I want the woman, get her for me. Uh, in, ancient, in the ancient world, this is actually kind of how it works. When a young man kind of likes a lady and he sees her at the county fair, he goes to his parents and says, I kind of like that lady over there. Would you talk to her parents for me? Because we don't have these traditions, it's all been reduced down to middle schoolers passing notes, right? <laughs> Do you like me? Do I like you? So this is a way that can save face for a young guy. If my mom and dad go talk to her mom and dad, then if there's nothing going there, the moms and dads can work that out. But if there's maybe something going there, they're going to make that happen. And that Jewish tradition, some people would say, is carried through all the way to today. When grandma says, can't you find a good young Jewish girl to marry? And that tradition is still kind of there, that the desire to keep the Jewish people together. So he says, go get her. He's asking for his father to do that. Deuteronomy 7.3, you shall not marry, make marriages with the Canaanites or the, the pagans. Thy daughter shall not be given to a son and your daughter shall not take unto your, them another's son. The, it's in the law. So Samson's asking his parents to break the law, right? Do Nazarite people do this? No. So he's completely disregarded this vow that was supposedly made back when he was a baby, which says that there aren't magic powers here. And I think that's really important to note. In fact, we're going to break two of the three rules before we even get a lot of miracles, right? God's going to still do something with Samson. Even the, Imagine what happened if Samson actually kept his vows. Like he could have been a Gideon. He could have been a Joshua. He could have been great. There could have been so much more. And he's nothing. Right? Because he's just breaking vows left and right. So as good parents that have some idea what's right and wrong, they try to dissuade him. Um, then his father and mother said to him, There's no woman. Is there, isn't there a good Jewish girl? Is there no woman amongst the daughters of your brethren, which would be the tribe of Dan, and amongst all my people, which would be Israel, that you have to go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She pleases me well. <laughs> Samson's a double-minded man, and a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He just, he doesn't understand that God's law is for his own good, and he's just happy to break it. Uncircumcised, look it up in a dictionary. <laughs> Moving on. I got better coming up here. Um, the reason the Jewish parents were in charge in this sense is because family took precedent over individual in, in, Deuter in Mosaic law. The family was just more important than any kid. And when the family made decisions, we did it. Note that he went to his father and his mother together. He didn't go just to his dad. He went to both his parents. And he asked him what was going on. So this idea that they could have marriages within the tribe was generally what they were looking for in these situations. Uh, so... As Samson has been prepared for great work, his heart isn't prepared. So he's taken vows. This is one of those things where you're not a Christian just because you were born into a Christian home. You have to do business with God. Nobody else can do that business for you. And you're not a Christian just because you come to Bible study on Sunday nights. You still have to do business with God, right? Nothing in the world and nothing you do does that work for you. The only thing that does that with is when you talk to God and have those conversations. Get right with God. So the union then is a, uh, one here that's uh, supposed to be a fellowship. And when God marries a man and a woman, it's supposed to be a spiritual connection. How can you be spiritually connected with somebody who worships a different God? 
And that's kind of the Hebrew problem or the Jewish problem with this. Uh, it's in the New Testament too, 2 Corinthians 6, 4. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness and what communion has light with darkness? Marriage is supposed to be spiritual. When one of them's a believer and one of them's not, that's not really going to last very long. It's broken from the start. So even after marriage, the difference in belief can rip the marriage apart and it likely will rip the marriage apart. People will try to stay together, but, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, but, and if she departs, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. But if the unbelieving departs, let him go. A brother or sister is not under bondage in those cases, but God has called us to peace. Let peace be in your heart if you're a believer. Relax. Let yourself off the hook, right? Those situations happen. God's a big God. He understands. And he knows your heart. Are you seeking him is all that really matters. Those are tough situations, right? Verse four, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. They didn't know God's still working in this situation. They only know that in retrospect. So the author puts in a little note here in verse four. Likely Samuel's the author. That he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. He being God, there should be a capital H there. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. God's going to use all of this stuff. So Samson just being kind of a... Um, disregarding God uh, is something that uh, God's going to use. Verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and he came to the vineyards of Timnah. Should a Nazarite be anywhere near a vineyard? No, shouldn't be anywhere near there. So the vineyard, so he's where he shouldn't be going. He's not even supposed to, number six, four, um, he's not supposed to be near the kernels, even to the husk. Nothing having to do with the vine should he be anywhere near it. So why is he going there? While his parents go off to talk to the other parents, apparently he splits, and the first place he goes is right to sin. Like he's outside the tent and his parents aren't watching and his heart goes the way it's going to go. So Samson's sin here isn't forced. It's clearly his will. I think that's the point of verse 5. Um, he's, God's going to let sin beat the Philistines. And this is important. When God takes one enemy and has it work against another enemy, that doesn't mean that God is doing evil. It's that he's going to allow evil to beat up evil. And what's in Samson's case, that's kind of what's going on. You got a guy whose heart goes astray and it's going to cause a mess and that mess is going to be a lot of dead Philistines. And God's just going to let that happen. So they go off to arrange a, a, a marriage. Samson's doing his own thing. Now to his surprise, to his surprise, a young lion uh, came roaring against him. And the spirit of the Lord, Ruah Jehovah, came mightily upon him. And he tore the lion apart as one of, would have tore apart a young goat. Like I know what tearing apart a young goat is. <laughs> like honestly, like, we're in a generation that doesn't get some of these, like, you know, how you tear apart a young goat. Caleb might know how to do that in the back. So, though he had nothing in his hand, but he didn't tell his father or his mother what he had done. So, Samson's not at home minding his own business. He's out causing trouble. There is a lion that seeks to devour him, and God doesn't let that happen. And, and, and there's, the imagery here is also really strong. God's going to protect Samson because he plans to use Samson, even if Samson's going off and doing his own thing. So the Spirit of the Lord comes. 
Why is the Spirit of the Lord coming? Because he's going to use them. The Spirit of God comes upon is an important kind of piece here. There's three different ways the Spirit of God works with people. The Spirit of God either comes upon people, the Spirit of God can indwell people, and the Spirit of God can abundantly pour out of people. And there are different phases in our relationship with God that the Spirit works in different ways because God doesn't overwhelm people and never does anything we don't want him to do. Right? So before we're saved, the Spirit of God comes upon us and stirs our heart that points us towards God. When we're saved, we invite him to come live in us, and our spirit and God's spirit are moving forward together. And we have discussions with ourselves sometimes. Should I? Shouldn't I? What do I do? And then there's times where God's using us in ministry where the Holy Spirit just pours out of us, and it's awesome because we just get to kick back and watch God do it. Look at what he's doing. And those different relationships there. With Samson, it's important to note, the Spirit of God came mightily upon him. Samson's not working in concert with the Holy Spirit. He's doing things because the Holy Spirit wants him to to survive. Uh, Ripping apart a lion, uh, there's no real record on how to do that or what that looks like. I looked, um, but I couldn't find anything. Uh, The point here that I think the verse is trying to make is that he didn't tell his parents. When you were a kid, are there things you didn't tell your parents? When we don't tell our parents things, it's usually because we're trying to hide something. He's hiding two things. One, what are you doing down by the vineyard, Samson? You're not supposed to be there. Two, why are you killing a lion? You're not supposed to interact with dead things. So he's just broken two of his Nazarite vows right there, one after the other. So sin likes to thrive in secrets. And when we we have things we don't tell our parents, sin loves that spot. It loves to be in the dark. Then he went down and he talked with a woman and she pleased Samson well. <laughs> so the spirit's upon him. He rips apart a lion and then he goes and talks to this woman. Um, not stopping Samson from sin, but saving him from the enemy. Does that make sense? So the spirit of God is never going to get us to do something we don't want to do. And if our heart seeks after um, that Philistine wife, he might let us just go do that. And then we turn around and go, oh Lord, why do I have all these problems? Well, because you went after the Philistine wife. Anyways, there is a passage here. I told you I wouldn't get into the circumcision because there's a better one coming up. It's right here. And she pleased Samson well. The phrase there in the Hebrew actually doesn't mean pleasure or happiness. It means to go straight. Do with that what you will. But she t- he went down and talked with a woman and she made him go straight. So this is not PG text. It's very blatant what's going on with Samson right here. I think that the Puritan people or people doing the New King James version, they just didn't have the heart to write it that way. And honestly, that's why our translations look the way they do. They didn't want to write it in the real Hebrew. But actually, he was physically attracted to her in a way that made him very happy, right? So they just gently gentrified that text, and that's what it says. You can put a note there if you want somebody to find it, or you can hide that from your parents. After some time, he returned to get her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So I think that the relationship with the woman is something that Spirit wants to incite a battle with the Philistines, and he's going to use this to do that. This whole thing with the lion, he turns aside to go do that. Why is he going there? Because he wants to look at the carcass of the lion and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. So people do all sorts of things with symbolism on this. 
Honestly, usually I give you all of them, but they're so ridiculous. Like the point here is that he's going to see a dead body. Just like the point before was that he was going to a vineyard, right? He's breaking his Nazarite vows left and right. And now there's this honey thing and this is where he's going to get his riddle from. He took some of it in his hands. Now he's touching the carcass. He's, he's not a Nazarite anymore. He broke his vows. He shouldn't have magic strength, right? But God doesn't necessarily need, those, those vows and those rules are for us. They're not for God. God's going to do what God's going to do, right? So he took some of it in his hands and he went along eating. First of all, now he's got sticky hands. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them. And they ate it? Like, this isn't like clean. This isn't kosher food eating. The habits in this home are frankly disgusting. If your kid came home with a bunch of sticky honey on his hand from which he had already eaten and offered it to you, would you eat it? No, because in Judeo-Christian civilization, we think germs. That's nasty and dirty. We don't eat that way. But that's been the overwhelming prevalence of, of the church over 2,000 years on our cultures. But yeah, they, they, he comes home from, and he gave some to them, and they also ate. So they ate honey that was in a dead carcass on a kid's hand that he walked home with and ate from. This is disgusting, and I think that it's in here because we're supposed to be disgusted by that. Like, all of this is just wrong. But he didn't tell them that he had taken honey out of the carcass of the lion. Ah, gotcha, Mom and Dad. Now you're eating dead honey. It's disgusting. The character of Samson is shifty, kind of nasty, and now he's doing this to his mom and dad who raised him? That's not honoring your mom and dad, so now he's breaking commandments. You know, this is not a good guy. So he has the appearance of faithfulness, but the heart of rebellion. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, that's of the world. 1 John 2, 16. Going back to that lion's a kind of pride. He just wants to see his work, what he's done. But really, God did it. Spurgeon looks at this like the image of Christ killing the lion and then sweetness coming out of the victory. Again, I'm just giving that one. A lot of these images are just weird, and I don't understand. It's a very straightforward narrative, I think. But again, mystery inside of Enigma, you can go that way if you want to, uh, or there's a direct approach on this. And some of you probably have some cool ideas with Samson we can talk about afterwards too, because this is a pretty famous story. So, the young, uh, so in verse 10 it says, So his father went down to the women. It's going to finalize the marriage. And Samson gave a feast there for the young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with them. So it says the young men used to do. That means the Philistine men used to do this, which means Samson's just trying to be like the Philistines. He's trying to do the things that they do. Um, the idea of freedom in Christ, like I was just looking at this, like Samson's not a free guy. He's bound by his own lust and pride, and he's bound by this idea that he's got to be like the Philistines. So we get a bachelor party scene. The word feast there in the Hebrew, it means a drink. It's a specific word for a drinking party. This is a binge. So they're all going to go get loaded. Um, and, and yes, in Philistine culture and Greek culture, they would get so drunk that they'd all crash there and they'd wake up the next morning sleeping in the streets. So this is part of that kind of culture uh, and part of what the ancient world was like. So it's the same word that got used with Laban when he had a drinking party, when Pharaoh had his drinking parties, it's the same thing. So they brought Samson, these people, which means Samson doesn't have his own friends. Do you notice he doesn't even have a best man? 
So he's come of age in the tribe of Dan, and nobody likes him. That says something. When somebody's that much of a loner, there's a lack of humility there to actually learn something about how to get along with people. And we don't all get along with each other, right? That happens. We have people we naturally connect with and whatever. But the whole tribe of Dan, he's got nobody he naturally connects with. That's pretty rough. So they buy him. Well, it's, it's easy to buy people when you say free beer, right? So everybody shows up for the drinking party. He's got all these friends that are there to drink with him, but they're not really friends. Further, if it's a drinking party, they didn't this isn't a wheat field territory. This is vineyard territory. A drinking party means he's around wine and stuff again. So dead bodies, wine, the only thing he's got left is the razor. So when they saw him, uh, this means, uh, it, it doesn't imply that they saw him and said, whoa, look at how big and strong he is. They saw him, and therefore we need all these guys around him. They saw that he was by himself. And then said, we got to get him some groomsmen. Somebody's got to be on his side of the thing. So we get verse 12. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. All right, this is cool too. Another little piece of connection to the ancient world. The ancient Greeks used to do this at parties. And this is a notable thing. And the Philistines are Greeks that started making settlements all over the Mediterranean pre-Greek, right? So they are people that moved and settled these areas. But the, the idea of telling a riddle at a party, this is something that was part of that culture and part of that tradition. So it's, it's an amazing little connection to the secular history in how the Bible portrays this, is that you have an Israelite using a Greek cultural trait. In a, and again, Samson's just trying to be like, you know, when in Greek, do what the Greeks do. And he's trying to be like a Philistine when he does this. So in posing a riddle, he says, if you can correctly solve and explain it to me within seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing, which he doesn't have. So he's, he doesn't think they can solve it. But if you can't explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. So um, Canaanites never did this, and there's no record of Canaanites doing this in any of their festivals. But Philistines and Greek would do this kind of storytelling and riddle telling and, and joke telling as part of the evening's entertainment. So they say to him, pose your riddle that we can hear it. So they say to them, uh, so he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet. That rhymes in the English. It also rhymes in the Hebrew. From food eater comes eating food. From fierce comes sweet. So he's playing with the root words on each of those phrases and he's just flipping the root words. So it's actually kind of a clever Riddle, it's just not a fair riddle, because if you didn't see what he saw, this is, riddles are supposed, okay, by Greek culture, a good riddle is something that when you hear the answer to it, you had a fair chance at figuring it out, if only you thought of the right thing. So it's an exercise in getting your brain to use those words in as many ways as you can. This isn't a fair riddle. So this is why they're going to get ticked off at Samson, but that's coming up. So they said, so, so now for three days, they could not explain the riddle. And after three days, they start to take, you know, they, they can't get this thing. They're going to try to cheat. Um, Samson's not a very good riddle teller. Um, by the way, he's not supposed to be gambling either, right? Just listing off the stuff Samson's doing that he's not supposed to be. Um, worse, uh, he's using this sin and this deception um, to mock the sacredness of a wedding. Like he's taking his own wedding and he's trying to win clothing. 
Like, this is not a good situation. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he can explain the riddle to us or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. We're just going to do it. And, if, and it, have you invited us in order to take what's ours? Is that so, so we come to your wedding feast and you're going to take a bunch of clothing from us? Really? And take the shirt off our backs? So they're not friends. Apparently that fake friendship isn't going very deep. Um, and there's no civ- civil or civic life here. Like there isn't basic common decency. If you're angry about a bet, you're going to burn the house down and kill everybody in it. Like think of the world that we live in at this point in history. Uh, as a general rule, you shouldn't bet. <laughs> and because even when you win a bet, you really lose the relationship. It's not a good, so that's kind of why you don't do this. So it's not a fair riddle. They're upset about that. They're justly upset about that. And they go to his wife, or his, it says his wife, but they wouldn't consummate the marriage until the seventh day of the feast. Okay, so other people believe that it consummates on the first day and then they hang out all week. It's an odd way to look at it, but uh, the predominance of scholarship says they're not actually married until the seventh day. So it's all coming down to it. So Samson's wife weeps with them uh, and says, she's weeping with them because she's terrified. If a bunch of people say, I'm going to come and burn you and your house down, that's terrifying. Like, let's give it to Samson's wife here for just a moment. This is, she's trying to salvage the situation. But unlike Samson's parents, where the wife went right to the husband, she goes right to the husband but doesn't tell him the whole story. She's deceptive. And instead of just being candid and open, then they could figure this out together because she didn't know he had super special powers or anything like that. Then Samson's wife wept on him. Notice that she is going to entice him and she's doing it out of fear and now she's bringing her tears to get her way. So this is a manipulative wife. And then she says, you only hate me you do not love me. Okay, this is manipulation at its worst, right? Nobody wants to hear that from their wife. You've posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you've not explained it to me. And he said, look, I haven't even explained it to my mom and dad. So should I explain it to you? We're not married yet. I haven't even told my parents. Why, you thinking I'm going to tell you? Verse 17, now she'd wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted. This is a miserable feast. Seven days and the woman who's going to get married is crying the whole time? Maybe she didn't want to be making Samson happy. Now she'd wept on him for seven days while their feast lasted and it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she had pressed him so much. There's The only thing worse than a complaining wife is a dripping faucet. That's somewhere in the Proverbs, right? Right? It's just, at some point, I think God wired it into my heart at least, and other husbands in the room can talk about it. The only thing we really want is for our wife to be happy, right? So women, you have a lot of power in most marriages because all we want to do is have our wife be happy and glad. And if she's crying every night when we get home, there's nothing worse than that. And it's like, what do I got to do? I'll join the mob. I'll do whatever it takes. (laughs) I'll make it work. So she pushes him into this situation. He finally tells her, then he explains the riddle, then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. She goes right out and betrays him. So just, you reap what you sow, Samson. And he didn't pick her for her character, and we now know she has no character, right? So he got what he was buying, and and he's not happy about it now. So 
In Genesis 2.24, it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. I think that's where Samson's saying, I haven't even told my father and mother and I haven't cleaved to you yet, right? So I, I haven't made that shift yet. And because of that, like there's there, but either way he gave in to her. Um, so he's kind of admitting by that law, he's kind of admitting that he's still a boy. He hasn't really left his mom and dad yet, right? So she is fear-driven. She questions his love. She questions his loyalty. And she's persistent and nags about it. And he gives in after one week. So not very much resolve on Samson's part either. His strength is clearly not in character. Um, so she explains the riddle and betrays him. In her head, I think she's saving her own home. But in saving her home, she ruined the family. So sometimes the priority can get wrong. And this isn't just women, this is all of us, right? Sometimes we think we're doing something good, but we're breaking something that should be sacred when we do it. And I think that's the core of a lot of evil. Most people who do things that are wrong have some reason why they think what they're doing is right. And in her head, she's making it so their house doesn't get burnt down, which is a good but she's betraying her husband, which should be her, her new loyalty that she's about to have. So in doing that, she kind of destroys what she could have had with a life with this guy. So it makes a fool of him, makes a fool of her. And the men of the city, verse 18, said to him on the seventh day before the send down. So the men of the city wait till the last minute because they want the theater of it all, right? Before the sun goes down. He's, Samson's thinking, I'm here. I'm going to get my 30 clothing outfits, nice Armani suits, and then I'm going to go in and be, be wed to my new wife. This is great, because I think she looks great. Um, so they come in right before he goes back into the room with his wife, right? This is what happened on night seven. What's sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? They solve the riddle. And he says to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. <laughs> Again, God just puts that in there to keep us awake. Uh, he just loves this stuff. Um, it's not a subtle accusation, right? There is no culture in all of the earth, in all of human history, where calling a woman a cow is a good thing. <laughs> it is always an insult that will be taken that way. So he's furious, right? Not only is he mad at the Philistines, he's mad at this woman who he's going to marry and what she just did. So he calls her a heifer. To plow someone... You can put your own metaphor on that, but I think we're back in the R-rated range. And again, notice how the book gets more vulgar towards the end than when we were with Othniel and whatever. This freedom that the Israelites got by doing whatever they want in their own eyes, what happens is everything gets destructive and nasty and mean, and the language gets worse and vulgar and grotesque. Do you notice that? Like, this isn't Joshua's Israel. This is Samson's Israel. And there's nothing glorious honorable, noble, or good about this Israel. Like he's calling his wife a cow and accusing these men of plowing her. This is not good. So um, either way, you could tame that down and it's just, you could interpret this as that when you plow with a cow, that's a misuse of a cow. So that's a gentle way to do this. So you would always plow with, with the male of the species. So he's basically saying you misused my wife. You went to my wife behind my back. I think he's being a lot more vulgar than that, but do with it what you want. Um, 
God's looking for a good place to start a fight between the Philistines and the Israelites. This is a good place to start a fight. This is where it gets personal, right? Wedding night, family honor, all this stuff. God's using this situation and he's going to use it. Verse 19, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, which means he's not necessarily doing God's work here. He's in sin, but God's going to push him in this direction. So Samson goes down to Ashkelon, a major Philistine city. There's five of them. And he killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, gave the changes of clothing to those who explained a riddle. So now he's a murderer and he's a thief. Just stockpile the sins with Samson. Like almost every action he takes is a sin. So he does it. He kills these people, steals their clothing. Ashkelon's far enough away. They don't have the internet. So that they wouldn't have known where he got this clothing from. They didn't know that he killed a bunch of Philistines to get the clothing. So he's going far enough away to do that and make that happen. Um, so Samson's greed, not wanting to pay his own tab or not having the ability to pay his own tab, so he's pretending he's richer than he was, uh, is motivating this situation with the Philistines. So the text is careful uh, to show the progression in the story, I think. And this is one of those passages that's a good example of that. Um, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed these men. So what he's doing gets to, he kills a lion, now he kills 30 men, and each time the Spirit intervenes, we're going to get pick more and more fights. But the first fight was with a lion trying to devour him. And the second fight is with Philistines trying to devour Israel. And these fights just keep going, but I think that we're painting it, that writers painting it that way to show that we're fighting Philistines here. So he killed, he took, he gave, his anger shows up. In other words, his anger gets aroused at the end of this, so his anger was aroused and he went back to his father's house. His anger showed up after he killed the people. Did you catch that? So when the Spirit of God is upon him, it does not arouse him to anger. He, is, he goes down, he does the killing, he gives the clothing to the people and follows and says, here's all your clothing, does the transaction, and then he gets anger, or so his anger was aroused. So that is how that happened. So it's kind of almost like a very orderly process, but it, like a seething anger is with him. Now I hate these Philistines. These people are cheapskates. They play dirty, and I don't like how they operate. It's a hard thing to explain. Samson's hard to explain. But he was looking, then he was planning, then he ignored God, then he moves towards the wide press, then he sins privately with the dead lion, then he sins publicly with the gambling, and now he takes some fake friends, and that all leads him to anger, and ultimately it's going to lead him to destruction. But it all started with him looking. He just wanted to dabble with sin. And at the end of the day, the sin is going to cumulate into killing him and taking his life. That's what sin does. So there's humility, there's shame, there's hurt. He's supposed to get married, the marriage is off. This is just, the whole situation dishonors his whole family. Like in Jewish culture, the whole family's kind of embarrassed by this situation with Samson. So he didn't have any friends before, and now he's a laughingstock when he goes back to town. Imagine the situation, right? He had to grow up with other peers, there has to be somebody, and none of them came to his wedding. So he goes back to his father's house, that's going backwards, Again, shame. Sad part here is Samson knows what a good marriage should look like. His mom and dad are together when he was born, and they're together when he grows up. So when he goes back, he actually knows what a healthy marriage looks like. 
And then he's not able to make one happen. And that's humiliating and hurtful and hard. God's still going to use him. So point being that sin looks really, really good to Samson and then it doesn't end very well for him at all. Verse 20, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Ah, you get where that's like, it's just laying it on. And God's given him trials and it's getting worse and worse and worse because God wants him to go to fight the Philistines. He's trying to get him ready to do that work. So the only thing that he's got left is to go back. He's in sin. The only thing that's left to do is go back to your father's house. Great image of Christ, right? Everything goes to pot. The whole world looks like it's a mess. People have betrayed you. Go back to your father in heaven. Be the prodigal son or daughter and just go back to God. Go back to where you know you got some safety and where you know you've got somebody who loves you. Um, the whole world seems to be against Samson, but he goes back to his parents' house. And that's where he's welcomed and cared for. And then this guy, this best man, wasn't a real best man. Remember, he's a Philistine best man. It makes you think like the whole thing from the Philistine side, they're just playing with Samson. Almost like Samson's like a little special in the head. Like he didn't quite know what the situation was and wasn't reading it right. And they're all just kind of mocking him and humiliating him. And at the end, these two get married anyways. But they had this great game where they could make Samson the, the goat of the joke, the butt of the joke the whole time. You know, not that kind of goat, Grant. Different kind of goat. So you almost get this sense that Samson's just being mocked and mocked as an Israelite. One of those people that served Jehovah. Ah, look at his long hair, because he would stick out with that long hair. Who does he think he is? Sacred, holy? We'll, we'll make the better of him. I think the world loves making fools out of people that look like Christians. They love it. <laughs> Back before I cared a lot about God, I loved making people who thought they were holy look silly. Like, honestly, there's a, a joy to that from the secular sense. And if some of you got saved later in life, maybe you know that feeling or you've just had people do that, but they want to see Christians take the drugs. They want to see Christians make the mistakes because it makes it more acceptable to be in sin. So if you can get people who are trying to be holy to fail, what a great victory that is. But it's a spiritual victory, make no mistake. And they do this with Samson, and it's almost like they got him that way. So his wife was given to his companion, who's been his best man. Many sorrows to the wicked... But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him, Psalm 32. In this pain, Samson's getting prepped to do the work God wants him to do. In this agony that he has, we're prepping for the next chapter, right, in this guy's life. It's the hurt that he has. Can you imagine what he felt like going, going to bed that night and thinking, what just happened? And how did this all play out like it did? So Samson is established in the first two chapters of Samson. He's the least godly judge we've got. But he's still going to do God's work. God's going to still use him. Um, and we know that he's going to do a lot more feast, feats that are recorded in, this, in this, these four chapters. Because it is said in chapter 16, verse 24, that there's many more feats that Samson did. So he, he was someone who was known as somebody God had blessed in this regard. Um, and Samson has a horrible habit of looking at everything in the flesh and not from the spirit because he just doesn't see the situation. So Sonny likes the darkness, if you want to contrast with that. And he's drawn to it. 
So Samson has to deal with them. Um, as we uh, see the next two chapters, we'll see that despite the sin, God's grace can abound. And God can do his work in amazing ways, even with people that are fallen. And that gives me a lot of hope. Because if God can use me, and he can use you, he can use anybody to do his work on this earth. And we know what his work is. It's to make disciples, to teach the word of God, to pray, to fellowship, and to break bread together. And that's what we're called to do. So if we do those things well, we can do it and be part of God's plan, or we can be seeing God's plan go forward without us, which to me was a heartbreak. I would never want to see God's plan go forward without me. I wouldn't want to be left behind in that kind of sense. I want to be part of what God's doing. So I can go to heaven and be saved and not have anything to do with God's work. Uh, but why would I ever want that? Why wouldn't I want to be part of what God's doing? So a couple questions for tonight, unless people have other ones. As we break up into groups, so for the new people that are here tonight, we just pray together quick before we leave. And some of the groups will kind of want to talk about the teaching. So what are some of the things tonight that stood out to you? Some of the things that maybe spoke to your life? Because if the word of God doesn't come back void, it's going to work in some of our hearts. So we share that a little bit. And then we just pray together and we take some concerns and we lift it up to the prayer. So we're not done yet. The most important part of the night is yet to come. Um, but have you been set apart for God's plan? And have you fallen short of what God set you apart for? in any way, shape, or form? And are there things that you have done to get yourself back into God's obedience and part of God's plan? So I wonder if there's things that back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you felt like you were called to do. Have you done them? Have you not done them? How has that gone for you? Because Samson was born with a lot of promise, and yet he didn't get there. Um, so just a thought or a question to kind of go into your groups, but you may have other, are there other questions that would be good group questions. I refuse to hand out a worksheet full of questions. But just some things to think about. And as your groups, you might have some things you want to chat about too that stood out to you so you can go off the rails. Amen? Dear Lord, we thank you for this, these two chapters. Lord, we know your word is a, a powerful and a mighty thing, Lord, that you've given it to us so that we can read it. So Lord, I just pray a blessing tonight as these words go into our heart. We see an example of a man uh, going the wrong way. And Lord, we see an example of just the worst of humanity almost. Um, and Lord, we, in that, we want to know that this isn't your plan for us, but we can have something so much better um, than the mockery of the world and the, the hatred of the Philistines, Lord, that you have grace and goodness in the fellowship of the saints, uh, that we have feasts and communion, uh, that we have um, prayer that we can do together, and we can have a love for one another that passes our personality types and puts our differences aside. Lord, may this place be sacred and may you make it holy that we can set apart this time on a Sunday night in this place, this Anchor Coffee Shop, uh, that it can be your space and your um, place to do surgery on our heart and our soul, Lord. We can look like Christians, but Lord, it's so much better to be one. Uh, and it's so much more important, Lord, that we have done that work with you. So Lord, um, move our hearts tonight, move with us in Jesus' name.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.